Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. You know that little blue logo you sometimes see on washing machines or air conditioners? It's got the word energy spelled out in white cursive next to a star. It's the logo for the Energy Star program. So it kind of gives consumers a choice on, you know, if they're looking to become energy efficient. That's Katie Dooley. She's from Heinsberg. And she uses the Energy Star website all the time at her job. She works for Efficiency Vermont, which is a utility that works to help Vermonters save energy. Side note, they're a VPR underwriter. Anyway, Katie and her co-workers use the Energy Star site a lot to look up products and figure out rebates. And Energy Star is run by the Federal Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA. President Donald Trump has targeted the agency for major cuts. And that has worried Katie. A lot of things that the EPA does, I feel like, are really important for our environment. And I wouldn't want that to be lost, which a lot of losses have already occurred, and things like that do affect my job. And then one day recently, it seemed like changes at the federal level were really going to have a direct impact on Katie's day-to-day work. This happened a a little while ago. The Energy Star website was down, um, and it was kind of a question as to if it was going to come back online. So at that point, we weren't sure. (laughs) The website did come back, but this moment got to something Katie had been thinking about for a while— Ever since the November election, she'd kind of been wondering if the federal government is going to change so much and maybe shrink, would it be so different if Vermont just went it alone? What would that look like? Welcome to Brave Little State, VPR's people-powered journalism podcast. I'm Angela Evansy. This is a show about curiosity. Every month we take on a question about Vermont that's been submitted and voted on by you, our audience. This month, what would it look like if Vermont could actually secede from the Union? A question about how Vermont might fare as an independent nation. We talk food and finances and foreign policy, and we also hear how a Vermont poet imagines things. We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund. Welcome. Right off the bat, we need to make clear that we are not advocating for secession in this episode. And yes, we recognize that this is a very loaded topic, and it has in the past led to a horrific civil war on our home soil. 
and presumably more horrific things could happen if Vermont actually tried to secede. We are not recommending this, nor are we going to go into the history of the Vermont secession movement or its past entanglements with white nationalism or whatever degree of support secession has in the state today. Instead, we're going to turn this episode into basically a thought experiment. And just imagine that we did, for various reasons, end up as an independent nation. How would that go? So to set the mood, we're going to hear from someone who very recently did a similar thought experiment. And his vision involves a lot of craft beer. (laughs) It must be said, Angela, I'm a first-time novelist, and parts of this book are drawn fairly directly from from my life. Uh, The love of Vermont beer, chief among them. Environmentalist and writer Bill McKibben normally publishes terrifying articles and books about climate change. But this month, he's out with a work of fiction, a fanciful new book called Radio Free Vermont, A Fable of Resistance. I actually don't think that we're ready to secede and go our own way, but I do think that we'd be just fine in the beer department were that to happen. Full disclosure, I got to know Bill through a Middlebury College journalism fellowship I did several years back. His book is about a boozy underground secession movement led by a man named Vern Barclay. The book is quirky and fun, and there's a chase scene involving snowmobilers and Nordic skiers. In this passage that Bill's about to read, the idea of Vermont as an independent nation is starting to take hold around the state. Here's Bill. That very night, in fact, some Wikipedia-wielding historian noticed that it was the 247th anniversary of the day in 1777 when Vermont declared its independence from Britain. Since he also happened to be the Dorset Volunteer Fire Chief, not to mention well into his second four-pack of Fiddlehead's Bracing Second Fiddle IPA, he sounded the siren on top of the firehouse for several minutes, which would have annoyed all the men who answered the call if he hadn't had several four-packs in reserve. They had cell phones. Before the deadline for the 11 p.m. news, half the towns on the western side of the state had sounded their alarms, and coverage on the late newscast from WVTV was enough to convince the Norwich, Versher, and St. Johnsbury departments that they were missing out on the fun. The next morning, five postmasters in Caledonia County arrived at work to find the American flag neatly folded in a regulation triangle on the front steps and a Vermont banner flying from the pole. Four replaced the flag. The fifth called the local newspaper to take a shot, and by noon the picture was spread across the top of the New York Times website to illustrate a feature story titled, In Quaint Green Mountain Hamlets, A Push for Independence. In early evening, two young men with a piece of rope set up a free Vermont border check on the Addison side of the newly rebuilt Crown Point Bridge. As incoming cars with New York plates slowed to a halt, they handed each driver an apple and a flyer advising of national customs and cultural sensitivities. Vermonters do not like having their pictures taken, but if you offer them a beer, they will usually allow it. Skimpy clothing is encouraged in Vermont. Being a and or asshole or acting like a New Yorker is discouraged in Vermont. Seven Days, the state's alternative newspaper, printed a page of oval portraits of great Vermonters, sized so readers could paste them over the presidents on their U.S. banknotes, pending the adoption of our own currency. Vermont Public Radio put out a press release acknowledging that its switchboard had been overwhelmed with calls from listeners who thought it was un-Vermont-like to continue describing itself as a member station of the National Public Radio Network. 
We will take no position on this controversy, the station said, adding, but we encourage all sides in the dispute to pledge their support in our winter fund drive, which begins tomorrow. Though Perry provided regular updates from the web, only Sylvia, trekking to Heinsberg daily for groceries, had a real sense of how they were dominating not just the news, but the imagination of their neighbors. I saw three bumper stickers on the way back today, she said. Two said Barkley for governor, one said Barkley for prime minister. Like our question asker Katie, Bill says he felt drawn to this topic after last November's presidential election. Well, I actually had been working on the book for a long time in little pieces here and there. But it was after the dawn of the Trump era that it seemed to make sense to kind of finally bring them all together and publish it. But in Bill's book, the political idea of resistance is deeply intertwined with the more basic idea of self-reliance, local economies, small-scale governance. He says that stuff interests him more than ideology. And that's the direction we're going to take, too, as we imagine an independent Vermont. You know, in some ways, I'd like to think, and I think many of us would like to think, that it wouldn't be radically different. But in other ways, of course, it would be. This is Rob Williams. He teaches in the University of Vermont's College of Agriculture and Life Science. And he's also the publisher of the Vermont Independent. Which is an online news aggregator for things related to independence in Vermont. It's the publishing arm of the Second Vermont Republic, or 2VR, which advocates for Vermont's peaceful secession. Once again, we are not endorsing any of this, but we reached out to Rob because we figured, here's someone who's put a lot of thought to what independence could look like. Imagine peace, secure civil liberties, small towns, small farms, and small businesses, human scale. Rob reads to me from a blueprint for secession called Plan V, V for Vermont. It's a rosy vision, and in a lot of ways, it sounds like present-day Vermont. Lakes and rivers. But Rob says some things would change. I mean, the big three for me really are what I call, lovingly call the three Fs. You know, it's, it's about finance, it's about fuel, and it's about food. Rob thinks there are ways we could be self-sufficient in these areas. He talks about a public bank and a decentralized energy grid. But he also doesn't imagine secession as Vermont just sealing itself off from the world. It starts with recognizing that really what secession is about is Vermont engaging the world on its own terms rather than terms dictated to Vermonters by the federal government. Rob figures we could trade our most successful products with other countries and provinces. That includes, you guessed it, Beer. You know, our craft beer is legendary, our maple syrup is legendary, our ice cream, our cheese is legendary. So that's really, I think, what we're talking about. Not building a wall around Vermont, but actually knocking walls down and opening up trade on our own terms with the rest of the world. And that sounds pretty good, right? Who doesn't want to export IPA and H cheddar and engage with the world on their own terms? Well, it turns out it wouldn't be quite so simple. My colleague Henry Epp picks it up here. If Vermont really tried to split off from the U.S., we'd probably face some pretty strong pushback from most of the international community. Josh Keating is a writer for Slate focusing on world news and foreign policy. And he says there's an international emphasis on keeping borders the way they are. I think that it's sort of hardwired into the multilateral institutions we have whether it's the EU or the UN, and it's been a point of U.S. foreign policy as well. So what would it take to start a new country? Josh says it's all about getting international recognition. What actually makes a country a country 
in the modern world is recognition by other countries. You know, there are places like the Principality of Sealand, which is a self-proclaimed territory that exists on a uh, former British military platform in the North Sea, and they've declared themselves an international country, and, you know, good for them. But uh, it doesn't mean that much if other countries aren't going to recognize you as independent. So how do you get recognized? You go to the United Nations. While we spoke, Josh looked up the exact requirements for UN membership. Okay, okay. If you want to be a member of the UN, the Security Council must refer you to the General Assembly, which then must determine by a two-thirds majority that you are a peace-loving state that can carry out the duties of the UN Charter. So the first step of that process, go through the UN Security Council and get the support of nine out of the 15 members, including, and here's the catch, all five permanent members of the council. Uh, The five permanent members are the US, China, Russia, Britain, and France. All five of those world powers, including the US. And given that Vermont would be seceding from the United States, that could be a problem. So the chances of an independent Vermont getting formally recognized by the international community are slim. But even without recognition, Vermont basically meets the internationally accepted criteria for being an independent country. Those criteria came from something called the Montevideo Convention, according to Josh Keating. What those criteria are is uh, it has to have a government, it has to have a permanent population, it has to have defined borders, and it has to have uh, the capacity to enter into relations with other countries. Vermont pretty much checks all those boxes, even the foreign relations part, at least with one other country. Nous partageons plus qu'une frontière. Nous partageons une joie de vivre enracinée dans une culture commune. That's a video put out this past summer by the Vermont Department of Tourism and Marketing aimed at enticing Canadian, specifically Québécois, tourism to the state. Canada is the top foreign destination for Vermont exports. And there's a concerted effort by state economic development officials to get Canadian companies to expand to Vermont. So we've got some foreign relations experience. We have borders, a population, and of course, a well-established state government. It wouldn't be too much of a stretch, you know, to appoint a secretary of state and just go from there. That's Malka Older. She's a PhD candidate at Sciences Po in Paris, studying governance and disaster response. We spoke over Skype. And since we're imagining what an independent Vermont government could look like, she's a good person to turn to. I'm the author of the science fiction political thrillers Infomocracy and Null States and coming out next year, State Tectonics. Malka's science fiction books are set in a future where the entire Earth is split into what she calls micro-democracies. The basic unit of jurisdiction is something called a sentinel, uh, C-E-N-T-E-N-A-L, which is based on a population of roughly 100,000 people. Each of those sentinels chooses their own form of government. These are political thrillers, so not everything works out perfectly. But the idea is that democracy works better at the local level. With a small population, you can try things out and see how they work, Malka says. Okay, you know, the parliament thing didn't quite do it for us. We're going to go back to the presidential system, but we're going to modify it in this particular way. I mean, there's, there's a lot of innovation in democracy going on now around the world. One of the innovations that Malka is particularly interested in is direct democracy. Where people can vote on every policy directly. Um, and that's another place where sort of the tech that we have now that we didn't have in, in 1776 is, is coming in um, to allow us to do different things and to try to have 
um, more representation. Vermont, of course, has a long tradition of direct democracy through town meeting. But in an independent Vermont, perhaps it could be updated or done in new statewide ways using technology. Maybe we all vote on the annual budget on our phones. Though there are big challenges to that, too. So part of direct democracy, but also really any democracy, is figuring out how to get people the information or the data that they need to make informed decisions uh, without spending all their time on it and without having to devote um, a lot of energy into arcane bits of policy because people won't and people can't. You know, people are working. They have their own lives. If Vermont were independent, we'd have to figure out how best to govern ourselves, how to tackle big issues as a society, how to figure out what public services to offer, and how the heck to support ourselves without the federal government. And that last part, supporting ourselves without the federal government, would be really hard. I asked someone who would know, Democratic State Senator Jane Kitchell. So, Senator Kitchell, you are chairwoman of the Senate Appropriations Committee. Um, and so that means you're sitting at the table helping to write Vermont's budget. Is that is that right? Yes, that's correct. So from a very practical standpoint and also a very imaginative one, in your mind, what would it be like sitting down trying to put together a state budget with no funding from the federal government? It would be um, something that I have um, tried to avoid thinking about. Our budget for FY18 is just approximately $5.8 billion. Um, $2 billion of that would be federal in source, which would be maybe 35%. 35% of our state budget, more than a third of it, is made up of federal money. And maybe you think, well, if Vermont seceded, we'd save all the money we pay to the feds in taxes, right? Wrong. Generally speaking, a study um, looked at recently suggested um, for every dollar we're getting a dollar and a half back. For every dollar in taxes we send to Washington, we get as much as a buck fifty back in federal funding. That's according to data collected in 2014 by the personal finance website WalletHub. Other studies over the years have found we get even more than that. Some have found we get less. But the point is, Vermont is what you call a net importer of federal money. Those federal dollars are marble throughout um, state government. The biggest source of federal funding is for Vermonters' health care, about a billion dollars. That's for Medicaid. But the money also funds a lot of programs that concern the health of all Vermonters. So I would suspect most people would not know that we do um, mosquito control and spraying with those Medicaid dollars. Another big area is human services, about $400 million. And that's for our uh, mental health system. We have federal funding to support our child welfare, our child protection, our foster care, fuel assistance. Then there's transportation, money for our roads and bridges. <laughs> All of the above to support our infrastructure. And that's about $330 million. Do a Control-F search for federal funds in the FY18 appropriations bill and you'll get back more than 90 line items. Education, public safety, state police, uh, water quality. So everybody's life is really impacted in some way. Jane Kitchell is super comfortable talking about the budget. But when she starts to imagine the hypothetical disappearance of federal funds, you can almost hear the panic in her voice. I, I just, I 
just don't know how we would be able to replace those federal dollars. The impact would be so enormous, particularly on our lowest income and most vulnerable Vermonters. I apologize if your heart rate is going up, just even thinking about this. I know it's <laughs> difficult to contemplate. I feel a bit like Scarlett, you know, uh, Scarlett O'Hara or Rhett Butler, you know. <laughs> it's like I'll think about it in the morning or something. <laughs> FYI, that's a reference to Gone with the Wind, which is about the Civil War. Very apropos for an episode about secession. I can't think about this now. I go crazy if I do. I'll think about it tomorrow. The other thing to remember is that for Senator Jane Kitchell, the loss of federal funding isn't entirely hypothetical. She's thinking hard about these possible cuts, just like our question asker Katie. It's also worth mentioning that if we did pull a ver exit, Vermont's farm economy would lose support. Farmers here have received hundreds of thousands of dollars this year through federally funded programs. So my colleague Amy Noyes tried to get a sense of what the food scene would look like in an independent Vermont. There's a place in Hardwick where they spend a lot of time thinking about local food production. It's called the Center for an Agricultural Economy. So just give me your, um, first just your name and your I went there to talk to Daniel Keeney. I'm the farm and food business specialist. And I asked him, could an independent Vermont feed itself? Depending on how you look at it, um, it could be feasible, but there are some very significant trade-offs. For example, Daniel says that while Vermonters would be able to get enough calories every day, we'd be looking at a much narrower diet. It would be sort of a, a bleak, or maybe for some, an exciting diet to eat milk, maple syrup, and, and apples all day long. The trade-off for an abundance of apples and cheese is a lack of some staples. We don't have really the, the processing capacity, the cereal grain production. Where would we get our oils from? Daniel says we could also make a shift from growing so much hay and feed corn to raising wheat and sweet corn. But then, of course, we would have less dairy, and that's, you know, a major trade-off. On the plus side, Daniel says Vermont's food distribution system is in pretty good shape. And with all of Vermont's farmers markets and CSAs, many farmers are well-versed at cutting out the middlemen and dealing directly with consumers. Our farmers are better at selling directly to customers than any other state nationwide. Strolling of the Heifers did a study of that. Uh, we're at something like 43 or $44 per capita. The next state on the list is around $18, so it's a very significant thing. Uh, I think that shows sort of the entrepreneurial spirit among farms. That said, you know, to get a fair amount of money for your food, certainly the prices will go up, I think. Still, Daniel says more Vermonters would be making a living off of agriculture. Uh, you would see sort of a, a much higher profile food economy, I think. So it's hard to know, given all the ramifications in one direction or another, how it would all shake out. And Daniel says maybe the question shouldn't be if Vermont could feed itself, but rather if it should. You know, I think it's worth considering that in the 19th century, Vermont was feeding itself a lot more substantially in terms of the percentage of food derived locally, and the environment suffered from that. 
Back then, Daniel reminds us, much of northern Vermont was cleared for sheep pastures for wool production. The 19th century, we saw a lot of land erosion. So there's some sort of hard choices you make when you start turning forests back into food production. Daniel also points out, many of us are cultivating lawns instead of food on our own properties. And if more people decided to grow gardens instead of grass, it would have a big impact on the food supply. So that's a whole lot of cultivatable land that we could turn into food production. And they did it in World War II, so what's to say we couldn't do it again? Victory gardens. Right, victory gardens. And this brings us to our last vision of an independent Vermont, as imagined by a farmer. Taylor Katz runs Freeverse Farm in Chelsea with her husband, Misha Johnson. Taylor is also a poet and a poet for hire, so we asked her to write something for this episode. Here's Taylor with a poem called Vermont on Its Own. Vermont on Its Own. For the holidays, everyone's road would receive new culverts, and everyone's driveway would receive gravel and a grating. Because our government would understand that roads and rivers are the lines that man and nature sketch on these hillsides. And the water that rushes alongside us is the water that fills our pipes. And the water from the sky is the beverage of the plants, grown with grim reverence for three short months into the food that fills our pantries and our cellars and our bellies. Beyond no billboards, there'd be no road signs at all, and the highways that bisected pastures would be returned to pastures. And if anyone tried to visit us, they'd become lost at once, with no cell service or internet service or gasoline service, because all our services would be password protected, passed from mouth to mouth by neighbors, all necessary information kept to ourselves unless absolutely necessary. And our chest freezers would be our banks, where all currency would be kept and kept cold, for all goods could be purchased with goods, hay for Hamburg, gas for green beans, coffee beans for Jacob's cattle beans, a half day's work at my farm for a half day's work at yours, and all the donut grease would be collected for biodiesel, and the fields of corn would butt up against the fields of hemp. And no one would agree on how to fund the cemeteries, and no one would agree on how to fund the schools, and no one would agree on what to name the new store, and everyone would agree to table the issues again until next year, when we'd hopefully, finally, dear God, fingers crossed, get the right amount of rain, and the right amount of sun, and the right amount of hay, and the right amount of corn, to feed all the animals and all the people each day of the year. And it would be on town meeting day of the perfect year that a brawl would break out over pies, distracting everyone from the absolute lack of anything to complain about. And as the strawberry rhubarb splattered on the town mural and the blueberry lemon was smeared into the hair of the town clerk, the newest residents of the town, the tiny babies in their neighbor-knitted hats, would look at each other and smile in unison before breaking out into a chorus of screams that could be heard far past the borders of the nation of Vermont. Taylor Katz, 
Thanks to Henry Epp and Amy Noyes for reporting this episode with me. As always, thanks so much for listening to the show this month. We have Taylor Katz's poem up on our website, bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can submit a question of your own and vote on the one you want us to tackle next. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund and from Big Picture Farm and from VPR members. If you like this show, consider becoming one. Our editor is Lynn McRae, and our theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Other music in this episode was by Lee Rosevear, David Saitstay, and Poddington Bear. I'm Angela Evansy. We'll be back next month, and until then, remember, be brave, ask questions. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.